Hello, I'm Bill Redman. Hi, Tony Faust here. And I'm Kevin Yeo. Welcome to Odin and Aesop, the podcast where we review and discuss military history books to help understand the events and ideas of the past. Some of these events and ideas shape our world today. If you're interested in learning more about the show, want to get a hold of us, or provide some feedback, please visit our website where we've got links to related material and contact information. Just Google OdinandAesop.com, all one word. We'd love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Twitter. So good evening. You know, tonight is the 20th episode, so it's a bit of a milestone for us, which is pretty amazing, actually. So Kevin, what have you been up to? I know you're headed out west to see your oldest get married. Um, How are the preparations for that going? Well, thank you. It's going pretty easy. You know, let's face it. um, Nowadays, you can get on a plane and be anywhere within about 24 hours. So, you know, it's not like... uh, trying to get across country in a, in a wagon or anything like that. One of the things I've been working on, though, for the wedding is I'm giving uh, my oldest daughter a family Bible. And I, I found the traditional Bible that has all the uh, spaces in it for your family tree, important dates, events, things like that. So I went and did some family research and been filling out the family tree for her so then when she starts her family she can just add on to that and kind of get a sense of her her heritage and all that good stuff so that's kind of what the prep has been for the wedding how is your work on the toast been going have you worked through that or you just gonna wing it that actually is a it's a good question i have i've been working on the toast and uh, I'm, I'm right now, I have not decided to go with either faith and love as a, a main theme of the toast or togetherness, we face challenges. I'm going with together, we face challenges. It's my philosophy on marriage. Yeah, or... I'm going with faith and love, but that's just me. And, and then I got a, like a, a dark horse runner is like, it's all about endurance. Just from now on, gut it out, guys. So no, no, nothing definite yet on the toast. I'll have to report back on that. Okay. Well, I can't wait to hear the uh, post-event debrief. I apologize for not being there, but um, we talked about why I can't, but hopefully we'll be there for the next one. So what else you got going on? You know, this uh, last weekend, uh, Lori and I went to the Flagler Museum in uh, Palm Beach, and kind of an interesting gig. Not many people realize that Mr. Flagler was a co-founder with uh, Rockefeller. And he was uh, a co-founder in Standard Oil. And it wasn't until his late 50s and uh, into his 70s that he actually uh, created a, a railroad and... Uh, kind of a land empire here in Florida. And it's all about that Gilded Age. And I, I would encourage people to look at the that Gilded Age time period, not only because it's very cool how they, they did it, but interesting trivia point that during that age, 30% of the American households had a servant, a household servant. 
and that Gilded Age being the, the like 1880s to about 1920. During that time period, 30% of all the American households had a household servant. And you just see how the wealth of society was spent then compared to today. So I, I found it, in, it really interesting. That would be an interesting question to see how money was spent over time on different, like where, where's the percentage of your money going? That would be very interesting, actually, to look at. Just think about right now. It Well, during the Gilded Age, the organizations that were creating and making all this money spent a lot of money into not only the infrastructure, but, uh, you know, look at the, all of our, our libraries in the states and all these different public facilities that were built then. And now today, our excess wealth as a society... Where is that going? Yes, exactly. That would be an interesting question. So I might have to check that out when I uh, go down to Palm Beach. Uh, anything else, Kevin? When you go to Palm Beach, you can get a little bit of a sticker shock going into restaurants. I'm just saying that with the economy right now, it's a li- everything's a little bit high. Um, but I did eat one of my favorite Southern meals there, fried chicken and waffles. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. Love it. Bill, what's going on out there in uh, D.C.? As always, a lot. Living my best life. I did. I went down and I checked out the uh, National Museum of the Army uh, on your recommendation outside Belvoir. They uh, did a good job of it, I think. Um, they're, you know, reading up on everything from Revolutionary War drill manuals to soldiers in space. But I think they did a good job. It was worth the trip. Other than that, we got uh, summer swim season is on, so it is a lot of sunscreen, and with my righteous beard and cheap sunglasses, I'm pretty much the ZZ top of summer swim officiating. I'm uh, bad and Northern Virginia wide, though. Okay, two questions. First, did you see Goring Sword? Yeah, I did. Pretty impressive blade. Yeah, didn't wouldn't have called that going in there, but I did, and I think that was because uh, they were they were guarding him at Nuremberg, and it was all part of the all his stuff. But yeah, that was an interesting display. Do you know that's Napoleon's blade, right? No, I did not. I must have missed that little detail. Yeah, so the this the actual blade is from Napoleon's sword. He, you know, because the Germans weren't above just rando picking artifacts up along the trail and then he put that gaudy diamond blinged out hilt on it and handle so but it is that's pretty cool right and second i take it did you see the sherman tank and the uh, the landing craft i did that was in the uh, european theater of operations gallery uh and they did stress the how the sherman really was a well-designed very reliable piece of kit with a lot of interchangeable parts. So yeah, uh, it, they got it in there. Good display, good explanation of why it is the way it is. I, I thought the, the docents there are excellent too. They're really good. Um, I think they're actually professional. So I, uh, you can learn a lot when you talk to those guys. Well, I'm a little more introverted than than you. So um, no, I, that would require me to go engage them to gain their expertise. So uh, I, I didn't go that far. My engagement is basically looking for an argument, um, which is never a good way to address the world. But unfortunately, um, that's the way I roll. 
Um, but I was very impressed with those guys' knowledge. They knew what they were talking about and can definitely teach anyone who goes there stuff that they didn't know. So I, I was very impressed by that part of the museum and their exhibits. The World War I piece is excellent too, by the way. They have some really interesting stuff in World War I. I'm sure you saw that as well. Uh, yeah, including the carrier pigeon basket. And uh, again, I'm just like, they were learning as doing. Yeah, like always. So, well, good on you. And uh, keep up the good work out there on the, the pool deck. I'm sure... Uh, uh, make sure you put a SPF 50 on. We don't want you to come down with the killer skin disease. No, I, I got it covered, man. I'm good. Excellent. Myself, not a lot going on right now. I did finish Pacific Crucible by Ian Toll, which I think I told you guys about earlier. That is a fantastic book. I am going to read the rest of the trilogy. I started it. Concur. Fascinating. Again, I, I just, the more I read about it, the more I learn. It, and he is a very good writer. Did you get to the point where he gives kind of his biographical sketch of King? Uh, no, I'm just, uh, right now he's walking me through Yamamoto, the gambler, and a uh, bit of a renegade, but he's also uh, talking through Japanese society in the 30s and how they got to where they are at with the Meiji Restoration all the way up through the industrialization, the world depression and everything. He explains it well. And again, I, every time, every, I just keep reading and learning. I'm like, hmm, didn't know that before. Since we're you're talking a little bit about museums, Something that I found I thought that you might like are the audio uh, histories or interviews, I should say, of the uh, of some of the famous people that have been in the Marine Corps. And if you go on the historical division of the Marine Corps, you can uh, actually hear them talk and go over their career and the battles that they were in. And they have the different interviews in uh, a little bit of research I was doing for our current book, I, I went and uh, listened to the interview that they did with uh, General Murray, uh, and fascinating, uh, his story of starting as a second lieutenant in 1935, and then going all the way through not only Guadalcanal, Tarawa, but then we see him in The Chosen, and then ending up in in. Uh, you know, the Vietnam War. It was just an amazing thing to, to listen to him actually speak and kind of go over his career. Yeah, General Murray was the, the real deal. Like, we, we, re, that we got him in breakout, and he is the real deal. Yeah, no, actually, I've checked out a few of those before. And they've also got the written transcripts, uh, which are also good. So, I like, for example, I was just reading the one with Jim Webb, uh, which I found interesting. So, uh, And they're all available online, too. So, yeah, good resource. Send me the link to that, Kevin, so I can partake. So, anyways, other than that, I'm doing some book shopping, kind of, you know, because I always look for a good deal. But uh, there's a couple of books out there I want to get. I'm waiting for um, a cheap copy or a library copy because, you know, I'm not hypocritical of James Holland's new book called uh, Brother in Arms, which is about the Sherwood Rangers from D-Day out to the end of World War II, which is excellent, I'm sure, because he's a good author. And I do kind of want to get Bolger's book, Panzer Killers. But we'll see. That's what I've been That's what I've been up to. Bill, we get any mail this month? I know, I, I know we got a couple because I, I talked to somebody. Uh, we did. First one's from Stuart Hayes in Asheville, North Carolina. Just sent an email saying he's been listening for a couple months, appreciates the book reviews. Yes, we could put a list of books that uh, that we plan to review on the website. 
And I, yeah, I think we can do that. Um, we are kind of got the tentative list put together. We might do a little bit of changing on it, but uh, we should be able to get it on the website once we get it finalized. Uh, Stuart, we did a scrub two weeks ago where we, we planned out uh, books 20 through 31. And so, yeah, we have a little bit more cleanup to do, and then we'll put that up for sure. So what else do we get? note from Ray Neary in Syracuse. Uh, just wanted to say happy 4th of July. Hope you get a chance to spend time with the families. With the advisory, also don't uh, lose any digits playing with fireworks. Not sure if you guys partake in the fireworks, uh, but if you do, please be careful. Also, appreciates that we keep our sea stories to a minimum. We can, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll keep doing that. But Dan, yeah, that's a good advisory because not so much the the zeal for fireworks has gone down, but it's still there. The fire still burns. And if you go 200 feet across the border to Pennsylvania, there is a warehouse of fireworks which are illegal in the state of Virginia. This is what I've heard other people tell me, by the way. Uh, so certainly I would never do anything like transport them into this state. But uh, you got to be careful when you're lighting those things off. Uh, especially around the kids, um, and there are they're pretty strict around that around here, which basically means you got to do it late at night and blame it on the neighbors. But we appreciate the advisory. Two stories, very quickly. The first one is um, my only run-in with the law was over fireworks because I did go to Pennsylvania and spent hundreds of dollars because I do enjoy a firework and our, my kids do too. And we treat it like a live fire range, um, so it's perfectly safe quote unquote, but we were blasting it off and uh, the neighbors called us off because, you know, it is, it was when we lived in Northern Virginia. So, you know, those, it's a litigious society. So we got, uh, we got the uh, Fairfax County's finest show up and tell me it's on par with a DUI and uh, blast me with a flashlight in my eyes. But I quelled the situation by being highly respectful and saying, we're shutting it down, sir which we did because that's the kind of people we are. Yeah, well, you guys weren't like launching M80s with wrist rockets and, you know, with a keg of beer and the whole thing. I mean, you're... I treat it like a live fire range, Bill. Do I need to say it any differently than that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, th I think Mr. Neary has, has identified us correctly. Um, I'll, I won't, won't give a C story, but I will say my first suspension from high school did involve uh, fireworks that I built myself. Was it involving a toilet as well? No, um, it was a it was a small device that I built that made a loud noise, but did put a hole in the uh, gymnasium floor. So, what can you say? These things happen when you're when you're young. What you can say is you're sorry and you were wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I did. I did say I was sorry and. What'd your mom do? I know she wore you out. I know she wore you out over that. Oh, yeah. No, um, I ended up spending two weeks uh, with my mother and, and father on the farm and not attending school and uh, spent a lot of time indoors. I'm surprised you weren't digging ditches. No, it, it, was, it was winter and... Even more reason to be digging a ditch, Kevin. That irrigation system ain't going in by itself. Now, Mom Yo is actually halfway, halfway sociable on that one. She, she, uh, there was not a lot of corporal punishment on that one. See, I love the way your mom taught you lessons of life. And it was generally 
through hard manual labor for anything that, that you fail to do correctly to you know imbue in you the right approach to life. She's a fantastic parent. I think underrated model in in the world we live in today. Yeah. By the way, Bill, if you ever want to hear a great story, have Kevin tell you the story when his dad was trying to fix the outbuilding and fell through the roof and smashed himself into the tractor. Kevin's mom was none too happy with him. Get that on the side. It's fantastic. And it and it tells you everything you need to know about Kevin's childhood with regards to there was penalties. There is a consequence, good or bad, for every action, Bill. Actions have consequences. Okay. All right. Well, well. anyways... I will, if at all possible, be partaking of fireworks because I believe in them. Um, I think it is one of the great things in life. So anyways, Bill, did we get anything else? We did. We got that email from Bob Hagen, a classmate of ours, uh, just told us, well, no, yeah, we suck and should stick to our day jobs. Um, And uh, I'm taking that advice, Bob. Thank you very much. Now, I understand you talked to him on the phone also. Yeah, I talked to him for two hours. Great guy. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but Bob Hagen is a... Uh, also trained historian, he is a history major from the from the school that we attended, and so um, I think he was a little bit more. He wasn't. He didn't wasn't in the same class as we were. Bill, with regards to watching you fall asleep while standing, but uh, he was. Uh, he's a really good dude, and he was also in my OCS platoon. So we have. Uh, well, I remember so many good stories to talk about. So anyways, he is an avid listener now, which is a good thing. Uh, Hopefully he'll keep spreading the word and we will stick to our day jobs. So anyways, please keep the mail coming. And it was a good week. You know, anytime we uh, reconnect with anybody we've known in the past, it's always awesome. Bill, why don't you kick off tonight's discussion with the operational overview? Let's talk a little bit uh, from your perspective on the Central Pacific's amphibious campaign. In May 1921, Marine Lieutenant Colonel Earl Hancock Ellis started traveling around the Pacific. He went to New Zealand, Australia, Manila, Yokohama, Japan, Yap, Palau, and Saipan. He would have kept going except he died on Saipan in May 1923. He basically drank himself to death. Ellis's whole two-year trip was an undercover scouting mission. He was sent by the Commandant of the Marine Corps, with the approval of the Acting Secretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt Jr., to study the problem of how to conduct amphibious operations in the Pacific. Japan was an ascending power. It had a strong navy and territorial possessions in the Pacific, the same way the United States did. People knew that for the United States Navy to prevail over the Japanese in the Pacific, it would have to seize advanced naval bases for the fleet to operate from until it could defeat the Japanese in their home waters. So that's what Ellis's job was. Go to the Pacific, study the problem, and report back on how the Marine Corps could seize these advanced bases in a war with Japan. Before he died, Ellis wrote Operations Plan 712, Advanced-Based Operations in Micronesia. Written in 1923, the Ellis plan was quite prophetic. He talked all about how the Japanese would have time to build intricate defenses, the need to establish a beachhead, the need for rugged equipment that could be rapidly moved, and the need to form and embark forces before leaving port. In short, in 1923, Ellis gave the Marine Corps a basic playbook on how to conduct amphibious operations in the Pacific. 
The Marine Corps took that playbook, developed it, and exercised it in the 1920s and 30s. That allowed the Marine Corps to start World War II at least somewhat trained, organized, and equipped for what it needed to do. Fast forward about 20 years. By early 1943, the United States had driven the Japanese off Guadalcanal, stopped Japan's advance in New Guinea, and defeated the Japanese fleet at Midway. Now it was time for the United States to go on the offensive. The United States planned to do this along two axes. One would be led by General MacArthur up through the Southern Pacific, through New Guinea and the Solomons, toward the Philippines. The other axis would be led by Admiral Nimitz coming out of Hawaii through the Central Pacific. The first objective of the Central Pacific Drive was the island of Tarawa. Bill, thanks for providing the background for tonight's discussion. You're 100% right with regards to the influence Pete Ellis would have on the war in the Pacific and amphibious operations in general. What he envisioned would be put to the test on November 20th, 1943. It was the first time in history that a large-scale amphibious assault would be made against prepared positions and against an enemy that had no capacity to withdraw. Today, this is called forcible entry, which is defined as an operation to seize and hold lodgments against an armed opposition. A lodgment is a designated area that affords continuous landing of troops and material while providing maneuver space for subsequent operations. I know that some of you will disagree that Tarawa was the first large-scale, long-range amphibious forcible entry operation. You will say that the Japanese conducted one against Wake Island in December 1941. I contend that the assault on Wake Island was an order of magnitude smaller in scale and didn't include subsequent operations. If you point to the Allied landings in North Africa, Sicily, Salerno, you have a much better case, specifically if you reference the 36th Infantry Division's assault on Salerno. I would agree with that, but from a Marine's perspective, Tarawa was the first. Tarawa was one of those historical events that can be pointed to as something that has never been seen before and one that changed the way wars are fought. Tonight's book, Utmost Savagery, can be broken down into three sections. The first section walks the reader through all the major events that led up to the battle. It is here that we learn both the Japanese and U.S. strategies for how they plan to prosecute the war. By mid-1942, the Japanese have realized they have a strategic problem. In the first six months of the war, they captured a vast empire that spread across much of the Pacific. They realized that they had to make a strategic decision. Simply put, they needed to decide if they were going to defend all of their conquests or let some of the outermost possessions go undefended so they could concentrate their resources in key areas. The author walks the reader through the choices the Japanese had and then provides the Japanese Navy's rationale for defending everything. In the end, what the Japanese Navy was trying to do with their defend everything strategy was generate a decisive sea battle. They thought if one of their reinforced garrisons on the perimeter, preferably in the Gilberts or Marshall Islands, could tie up an American invasion fleet, their combined fleet could then deploy with both surface forces and land-based naval aviation units and destroy the U.S. The tactical mission of the island garrison was simply to hold out long enough to allow the Japanese naval forces to arrive on scene and destroy the U.S. fleet. Like all things in the Japanese war effort, politics played a part. The Japanese army had different ideas and didn't want to defend the perimeter. Basically, they were worried that the Navy would leave their troops stuck on islands without any way to supply or support them. This, of course, generated friction between both the Japanese Navy and Army and resulted in not committing completely to the plan to defend the perimeter. From the U.S. perspective, the U.S. needed and wanted to capture the Marshall Islands so that they would have staging bases to attack the Japanese homeland. 
However, before they could attack the better defended marshals, they set their sights on the Gilbert Islands. The rationale for this approach was that the Gilberts were closer to their established bases, less well defended than the other island chains, and they presented an opportunity to perfect amphibious assault techniques before going against the tougher targets closer to Japan. In addition, having airfields in the Gilberts would allow the U.S. to fly reconnaissance and bomber aircraft against the Marshall Islands. The book spends several chapters in the first section walking the readers through the 2nd Marine Division's preparations for the Tarawa assault. The author does an excellent job of describing the division's training and the challenges they faced prior to the assault. It also goes into some detail about the LVT, known today as an Amtrak, and how the division commander decided to utilize the LVTs to carry assault waves of infantry ashore. This was a utilization of the LVT that differed from its original purpose, which was to be used as a logistics supply vehicle. Overall, this portion of the book sets the stage for the assault and allows the readers to get a real sense of what both sides wanted and expected to happen once the battle was joined. One of the unique aspects of the Battle for Tarawa was that it only lasted three days and was fought in a very confined area. What that produces is unimaginable violence and high intensity that many authors struggle to convey. Alexander walks a fine line where he highlights these two features with enough detail that the reader feels them viscerally without getting lost in them. As you read this section of the book, you'll get sucked into his description of the battlefield and the challenges that both sides had to contend with. Even knowing the outcome prior to starting the book, you'll really get a sense that this might have been the Japanese' only real chance to push an American amphibious assault force back into the sea. It was that close during the first 24 hours of the battle. Following a short but intense pre-assault fire support plan, the 2nd Marines landed three battalions abreast on the north side of the island. The initial assault wave had a 4th Battalion in reserve. During the initial assault, their three assault battalions landed in Amtrak's that drove over a reef that was located 500 to 700 meters from the beach. Initially, the Japanese were surprised by the Amtrak's ability to navigate the reef so easily. They really thought it was going to be an obstacle that the Americans were going to get stuck on. But they recovered quickly and began to lay down withering fire with both their 75mm dual-purpose guns as well as a magnitude of 13mm heavy machine guns. As bad as the fire was for the initial assault battalions, at least they were in the LVTs all the way to the thin beach. Once the Marines got to the beach, they also had the cover of a 3-foot high log wall to seek cover behind. However, whenever the Marines tried to move up and over the seawall, they would draw intense automatic weapons fire from multiple positions. Here's a short passage describing the initial assault. The final hundred yards to the beach seemed like a kaleidoscope of violence to the Amtrackers. Enemy troops suddenly appeared in plain sight. Captain Duran saw a Japanese officer standing defiantly at the seawall, dead ahead, waving his pistol, just daring us to come ashore. Lieutenant Norman E. Ward, leading six LVTs towards Red One, out into the water, shooting and throwing grenades. These the Marines quickly dispatched. The real problem came from those more disciplined troops who maintained their camouflage and protective positions, firing point-blank into the thin-skinned LVTs. The plan called for the LVTs to withdraw from the beach after dropping off the initial assault waves and head back out to the reef. Once they recrossed the reef, they were supposed to meet with the Higgins boats loaded with additional infantry battalions. These Marines would then cross-check from the Higgins boats to the Amtraks. However, the LVTs took such a beating during the initial assault that they had half the number of vehicles they needed to bring on the follow-on assault battalions. Many of the Marines from the two follow-on battalions ended up crossing the reef on foot and having to wade 500 meters under fire to the beach. 
After several hours, the Marines had parts of five battalions ashore. However, they struggled to make any progress getting inland. The single biggest reason for the lack of progress was the units ashore had little or no unit cohesion or integrity. Many of their heavy weapons had been lost during the assault, so the Marines struggled to conduct combined arms actions against the Japanese fortified positions. Another factor that hampered the advance was the commanders ashore lacked communications with the naval ships providing fire support out to sea. The result was the Marines were barely hanging on. About the only thing that had gone right during the day was during the pre-assault bombardment, the Japanese system of communication had been severely damaged, so they struggled with coordinating counterattacks against the Marines on the beach. So as night falls, the battle could go either way. The Marines are ashore, but they're low on ammunition, out of communication, burdened by large numbers of casualties that they can't evacuate, and they're struggling to establish an integrated defense. The author makes the point that had the Japanese island commander not been killed during the early stages of the battle, he would have seized on this opportunity and launched a counterattack under the cover of darkness that would have been difficult for the Marines to repel. Another indication of how poorly U.S. communications were working comes to light at the end of the first day, when the Marines discover they have an entire infantry battalion in Higgins boats that has been turning in ready circles for 12 hours waiting for the order to head towards the island. It is too late in the day to land the battalion, so the division commander makes a decision to land the battalion at first light on day two of the battle. But rather than bringing the Marines back on ship, they have them spend the night on Higgins boats. Try to imagine being in a Higgins boat for 24 hours, circling offshore of an island that's on fire, knowing at some point they're going to order you in. Personally, I couldn't think of a worse situation than what these Marines had to endure before they went into the assault. It doesn't get any better for them. Because of poor communication, the battalion was instructed to land at the worst possible place on the beach. In the end, they take horrific casualties crossing the reef and wading ashore. I read Utmost Savagery for the first time more than 30 years ago, and the following passage which describes the day two landing of the battalion that had been at sea for more than 24 hours in ready circles has stuck with me. To me, it always represented what it means to be a Marine. Pharmacist mate Costello and his team paused in their treatment of the wounded men in the damaged pillbox to watch the drama unfold in the shallows directly in front of them. Costello saw something he would never forget. It was terrible watching the Marines being shot down. By that time, I felt our cause was hopeless and the Marines would never get on the island. Then I watched one Marine coming in carrying a heavy load and saw him get hit. He continued coming in and I saw him get hit again. And he still kept coming. And he was hit a third time. When he reached the shore, I grabbed him saying, You stupid SOB, why in the hell didn't you drop that load and crouch in the water so you wouldn't make such a big target? As I dressed the wounds in his arm, jaw, and shoulder, I heard him mutter, They said we had to get this ammo to the Marines on the beach, that they were running short. I had to bring it in. The passage also represents the author's ability to describe what it was like in the lagoon for the first 36 hours of the battle. The battle starts to turn for the Marines when the right flank makes a little bit of progress on the western side of the island. This allows the Marines to land one of their reserve battalions in rubber boats late on day two. One six, the battalion that landed in rubber boats, come ashore without taking catastrophic casualties. More importantly, they are able to land as a cohesive unit with all of their crew serve weapons intact. This enables them to make significant progress reducing the island's defensive systems. By this time, the tide of the battle has started to turn and the Japanese have lost their chance to push the Marines back into the sea. 
Moving into day three, the Marines bring an additional battalion ashore where the 1-6 had landed, and then the two battalions systematically attack from west to east, methodically reducing the Japanese defensive positions. Although this resulted in significant Marine casualties, they now had the forces in place to finish taking the island. The last portion of the book is devoted to the battle's aftermath. Specifically, it speaks to what the Marines and Navy learned about amphibious forcible entry following the battle. The readers get a sense of how these lessons learned were utilized in the rest of the Central Pacific Island Hopping Campaign. So if you're interested in the evolution of amphibious operations, we highly recommend this book. The descriptions of what the Marines went through to get from the reef to the beach are haunting and really, really well written. Overall, we really believe you will enjoy reading this book and learn a great deal while doing it. So gentlemen, that was my book review for Upmost Savagery. Let's talk about your impressions. Bill, what what did you think of the book? Uh, Well, when I first picked it up, I really thought it was going to be a bit more Marine Corps, Ura, chest thumping, which I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. But that's what I thought. Instead, it turned out to be a lot more analytical, broader, and much more informative on why both sides did what they did and what it led to. So overall, yeah, it was it was a lot more informative than I initially anticipated. I think you're right on that concept of they do an excellent job, don't you agree, with setting the stage for, for the actual action during the invasion and then doing a postmortem on what they learned both from the Japanese and what they learned in their own techniques. And I think the author does a pretty good job of walking you through that. He he does again. I I mean I'm certainly aware of the basics and the story of Tarawa, but I thought the book was just going to be a retelling of you know how they crashed into the reef and stormed ashore and over the seawall and you know uh, with it, 36 hours later after heroic fighting it was done. Well, there was all that. But he goes in a lot more of all the thinking behind it and what led up to all that, which I didn't anticipate. Kevin. What do you think? I did a little research on the author, Lieutenant Colonel Alexandra. You know, he served 29 years on active duty, a couple tours in Vietnam. And at some point in his career, he w- was at the Marine Corps uh, Historical uh, Division, and he wrote Across the Reef, which is the uh, uh, for the historical branch. And during that, that, that I, I looked at that, and that's 60 pages of hard data. And you can see a lot of that data provides the, the backbone for this book. And that made this book probably one of the most accurate books that, that I've read in a long time and the most researched because you go through all the different sources and those sources are individuals. So uh, individual interviews that he conducted or this, that somebody else conducted for the uh, historical branch of the Marine Corps, a lot of details in it that only could be had from first person. So really interesting that. Um, but like you said, uh, Bill, it does a good job of laying out the big picture. Uh, the issues, though, that are raised by the book 
aren't really raised by the author as far as his interpretation. They're raised from those interviews that he conducted or that he had access to. And so I thought that was very interesting. I agree with you. That, and I left that out. Was a, He's explicit that a lot of the things, the questions that he is answering and the issues that he is addressing in the book aren't ones that he dreamt up. They were thinking about and asking these questions when they were uh, getting ready to do this and when they were doing it. So that's a good point. So let me ask you this question to both of you. When you were in, did you pick up any of those historical branch pamphlets on each one of the major uh, battles and campaigns? You know, the ones that used to be sitting around the CP or in uh, like if you used to, when you used to go get your IDs, they'd always have like a stack of them sitting on the table. Did you, you guys pick those up? I, I picked them up. I might have flicked through them, but I, I, and I might have flicked through them, and I might have been aware of the basic story, but I certainly didn't. Did I? Did I actually read them? No, and I probably should have. Kevin? Yes, I did. <laughs> I do too. I have the entire collection. Every one I could ever get my hands on, well, I took. Um, because, you know, there would always be like, they would drop off like 10 copies of the battalion and they'd be in like every company had them and nobody gave a crap about them, quite frankly, but they're all excellent. Like if you want a, a, a synopsis of the Marine Corps' experience in World War II, for instance, you know, they have one on Saipan, Tarawa, Peleliu, Guadalcanal, every major campaign. And I have a whole, I have the whole stack upstairs in my library and they're awesome. They're really, really well written. I, I read a lot of those. I don't think I had the entire collection. But do you still have them? No, I, I don't. My ability to transport, I just, I didn't. I lost a lot of books in this last move. Yeah, you're downsizing the wrong things, Kevin. I know. Furniture, you don't need that. You don't need silverware. You need to keep the library. I know. Well, if you two guys hadn't hoarded them. Maybe I would have had my chance, and maybe I'd just be that much smarter today, but you did me wrong. Um, but actually, a good example of what I'm talking about, I'd heard about Major Pete Ellis and his you know, report on amphibious operations in Micronesia. I, I, I hadn't read it until you know a week ago, and uh, it was insightful. By the way, Bill was the same guy who got to the heads late and missed out on the toilet paper. So, you know. I brought my own. He was taking his sock off. Um, to take care of business because we, you and I, Kevin, would have hoarded whatever toilet paper was in the head and brought it down to the company area because, you know, we're that way. I went in, when I was in Okinawa, I don't know how I found it, but anyway, I think I was on officer of the day duty going through and I found literally as a doorstop a book that was easily the size of a cinder block and so this cinder block and i i was like what is this and i started looking at it, and it was the loading plan for i forget it was two or three of the ships that were used at tarawa and i sh i wish i would have kept this book but it was just page after page of how they had loaded these ships for the support not not the actual combat load of the of the marines but where they put the 10,000 pounds of dog food yep th that they brought along and then also the the wooden crosses and the cigarettes and how they staggered the 
each one of these ships as far as within the unloading plan and where when they were coming. All that was planned out prior to them even showing up. And so that book, I wish I would have kept it because it was just incredible the amount of detail that they had in that. Yeah, that would be awesome. Um, there's that real famous story, by the way, of the private who had to load crosses for seven hours on the ship before going to uh, Iwo Jima. That's a motivator. All right, gentlemen, let us move on and talk about the Japanese defensive construction, what they did to build the defense before the Marines got to Tarawa. Let's, let's talk about that tonight and, and kick off our more detailed discussion of the book. To start that off, you know, when you're building a defense against amphibious operations, there's really two options you have. I mean, there's a whole bunch of options, but there's two basic concepts. One is defend at the waterline, like they did at Tarawa, or Wake, Wake Island when the U.S. were defending there. And the idea there is you stop the invading force at the waterline, you don't let them get inland, you never let them build a foothold, and you send them back into the sea immediately. And the other option is to defend with a mobile reserve where you put your bulk of your force somewhere in the rear, you wait for the landing to happen, and then you move that force to the invasion site and you counterattack. Now, in that case, you're usually looking at a geographical area that's pretty big. It's difficult to defend hundreds of miles of coastline at the water. You just don't have enough people or concrete to do that. Kind of based off the geography, the Japanese in this particular case were somewhat forced to defend at the waterline. They were forced, but that's also kind of what their thinking was in 1943. One thing that led them to that was Beishio, the the main island, Tar was the atoll, but the main island isn't that big. So you're pretty close to the coastline wherever you're at, and it's basically a small flat island surrounded by uh, a coral reef. So based on that, they were like, all right, th- th- this thing's not, it's so small the fight's going to be on right when these guys get to the beach. And I think that's that's what led them to do what they did. Part of it, too, was they actually had in their regulations from 1938 that they can only have a def- a pat- what they called a passive defense if they had a planned counterattack. So they it was the terrain and... Also, their their whole training, their doctrine, that they had to have some kind of counterattack planned. I think it's also worth pointing out, part of their defense or their defensive plan on this whole thing wasn't just the island. Certainly, they wanted to inflict damage on the landing force, but the Japanese plan to win this thing relied on the naval counterattack. And I forget the command arrangement, but they had the... Gilbert Island's uh, command, and they were supposed to sortie out and defeat the fleet. And then once they defeated the U.S. fleet, it's pretty much going to decide how things go in their favor on the island. Yeah, and they were never able to do that. They never launched that counterattack from the sea like they did at Guadalcanal, where it was immediate. They rolled cruisers down there to try to uh, destroy the American fleet. Uh, at the at the beachhead, and they drove it off in Guadalcanal. Here, they never even attempted it, which is kind of interesting. But it was also fascinating too when you think about that. Is the U.S. that was a big driver in our planning was the fear of the Japanese naval counterattack. So Spruance were like, "Hey, you've got to get this thing done quick," which then drove the offensive plan on how they attacked the island. 
um, it was less methodical than they probably would have liked. So I thought that was all interesting. But when you look at the actual island, the defining characteristic like you talked about, Bill, was that coral reef. And it surrounds the entire island. And it really did act as this natural barrier. And the Japanese, at some level, I think, didn't account for the Amtrak. And we'll talk about that later more when we get into what the Americans did. But that coral reef really did provide them uh, a level of protection because it's four or 500 meters off the coastline or off the beach, and you have to navigate it. And, and to get over it, most of the landing craft couldn't get over it. So anyways, it was just another feature that the island provided. The other thing about the island, like you mentioned, Bill, was it's very flat. And you couldn't really dig down because you couldn't see anything then. So they had to build their defenses up, which offers, it's, it's a less advantageous way to put a defense in, but they did a pretty good job at it. That's a good point. There is normally, if you, and these guys spent nine months building a defense, by the way, so they had time, but normally, hey, you can just keep digging down and down and down and down and put more earth on top of your, on top of yourself to make yourself less vulnerable to, uh, to whatever is being shot at you. But these guys also had to contend with the water line. Uh, so it's flat. They're close to the water line. So they had to build up. And th- there's limits to how much concrete they could pour, too. They, I think they, you know, they got plenty, but they could have used more. It's not the water line. It's really the water table, right? They... Yeah. The water table there is relatively high, and so that was another limiter if they could put in or not, right? Yeah. They had to, they couldn't dig deep, like Bill said, because of the water table. I'd like to take a a shot at describing what the typical Japanese heavy or light machine gun position, how it was built. Uh, there on Tarawa. First of all, there were over 500 of these positions. And these aren't individual positions. These are the machine gun positions. And these aren't the the mortar, artillery, naval gunfire. These are just machine gun positions. Now, the machine gun positions are actually very technical, if you will. You're just not digging a hole and jumping into it with your gun. No, the Japanese had nine months to prepare these positions, uh, and they did it well. So first of all, the typical machine gun position is kind of in a horseshoe. Now, the, the opening of the horseshoe is to the rear of the position. So we're just going to say that's to the uh, away from the ocean or away from the lagoon in this case. Now, Tarawa had a high water table, so they could only dig this horseshoe down about two to three feet, okay? But that was deep enough because at two to three feet, then the center of the horseshoe, which was not dug out, is the platform where the machine gun sits. So now you can walk around in a trench three foot deep around the gun. The gun itself is now facing towards the ocean, if you will. We're not done with that trench yet. We're going to line that trench with coconut logs, with packing cases, things that will stop the walls of the trench from crumbling in, if you will. The floor of the trench, we're going to slant that so that if a grenade comes in or water comes in, it'll go down into either a lower trench or a sump 
which will direct the force of the grenade explosion upwards and not out. It'll control that blast of that grenade. The back or the, our entrance, we're going to trench out our entrance and we're going to do that in a zigzag pattern so that if somebody does throw a grenade through the entrance, because we don't have doors, if, we do, if they do throw a grenade down here, it's going to hit that zig or that zag and not make it all the way back into our compartment or the compartment where the machine gunners are standing. Now, we've got this horseshoe trench dug. We got our machine gun into the center. Now, we're going to take the coconut logs and we're going to build a wall of these logs. And the way we build this log is either we dig a trench and then we stick them Kind of like the old Apache forts, we stick up, stick the log in and deep into the trench around, or we go ahead and, and lay them in a log cabin fashion. But we're going to basically make a, a wall, and this wall around the trench is going to be a foot or two out to the outside of the trench. So we got a little more space in in the inside of the compartment. But that wall is going to have a hollow space of about two to three feet. And that wall is going to then be filled with coral rock or cement or dirt. If it's the sides, it's probably going to be dirt or the coral rock. If it's the front, it's probably going to be cement. We're going to build that wall up all the way around us until we get to our firing, the direction we want it to be firing. And there, we're going to leave a pie-shaped aperture, only in the reverse, so that the large part of the, uh, the piece of pie, or the triangle, is back towards the gun. And the narrow part, the smallest part, is going to be facing where we want to fire, or where the machine gun's going to fire. Now, that facing, that direction is not directly towards the ocean because they don't want the Marines to be able to see where that gun is firing from. So it's going to be firing off to the left or to the right at an angle from the ocean, and it's going to be aimed at a place where they think either the Marines are going to be moving through or stop like on an obstacle. And we're going to have it marked so we know the different places to fire and we're also going to have it so we can fire and make sure that nobody is attacking the mound or the machine gun place that's next to us. Because we're not going to let that. We're going to be responsible for protecting the position to our left or to our right. That opening is only going to be anywhere from 12 to 24 inches wide, depending on how many points they want to cover with that gunfire. And it's only going to be about 8 to 10 inches in height. That's all they need. Now, over the top, on top of these walls that we've built, we're going to put a layer of coconut log. Then we're going to cross that layer again. Then they're going to put a layer of sheet metal and then a layer of cement. In the front, where we anticipate the most fire coming from, we're going to add another layer of cement. Then we're going to bury the whole thing in sand, and then camouflage it best we can. So when the Marines are coming ashore, the mounds that are directly in front of them, they don't see any firing from. If they look to the left or to the right at an angle, they can see guns firing. So that creates a problem for the Marines because one, you're waiting in, in water for hundreds of yards 
to you're trying to fire either your personal weapon or your machine gun to hit that mound and not only hit the mound because none of your bullets will penetrate it, but hit an opening roughly eight inches high by a foot to two foot wide. If your bullet is good enough or lucky enough or you're skilled enough to get that bullet through that opening, it has to hit the gunner who is directly behind that gun, reduces that target to now it's probably an eight inch by 10 inch square within that opening that you actually hit. Because if the bullet goes all the way through the opening and doesn't hit the gunner, it hits the coconut wall on the back and it doesn't bounce around inside. So these positions are basically impervious. Can't be penetrated by any small arms. And that's why the Marines literally have to get to hand-to-hand combat range on these things to be able to use demolitions or if they're lucky enough to be able to direct a big gun like a naval gunfire or one of the 500 or 1,000 pound bomb to drop on these positions. Short of that, they got to go hand-to-hand to get to that opening and then use satchel charges or flamethrowers or grenades to try to reduce that. That's what the Marines were facing at the individual level. That, I found that fascinating because they're, they're, they, they've got months to build this. You'd think it all be very, and it was very deliberate, and they're trying to bring in concrete and steel and engineer all this stuff. But then they also look around and say, wait a minute, go collect up thousands of these logs from uh, palm trees, bring them here because they're here. We're going to use these also. And they built the seawall out of them and a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, the other issue is that those positions are all interlocked and camouflaged, right? And you're talking about two pieces of paper. That's all you get to see. And you don't get a big time to like look around because the rounds are flying everywhere. So you just get peeks to see where the heck this fire is coming from. And then it's in depth so even if you get to that position and you think you get to the rear of it where you can go through those um the 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 serpentine entrance to throw a satchel charge in there or grenade it or 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 use a flamethrower on it you're getting fire from the next level or from the sides which are designed to protect it so those things are real formidable and they're all interlocked yeah so these guys the japanese had months they built these these positions that are virtually invulnerable to until you are actually there with a satchel charge and a flamethrower you're not going to take it and then they were all interlocking and then they had obstacles out on the reef to to a degree to hinder movement Uh, and they also brought in a bunch of guns to add to their defense and uh, and then they even brought in guys to train them on that as well now it didn't all go according to plan but uh Again, they'd thought about, okay, we got the positions, now we're going to put in obstacles to help them, and then uh, we're also going to bring in other weapons, too. You're correct, Bill. The the Japanese knew what was coming, and to the point where when they dug the anti-tank ditches that were on the beach, when you look at those, they dug them at the depth and at the slope that was supposed to be able to defeat the Sherman tank. I mean, they knew what they were coming up against. For example, you know, the, the, one of our main machine guns is the 50 cal, and it will go through an inch of steel, you know, 14 inches of sand, 28 inches of clay, all, all that good stuff. But then when you look at these defensive positions, 
the 50 cal really isn't isn't touching them what got me on a lot of this was they this place it's small it's flat they've got months to prepare it and the marine corps plan is oh well we're just going to go that's where we're going to we're going to go attack it and he talks a little bit about it is this whole idea of hey didn't you guys learn anything from world war one but there's really no there's no going around it doesn't matter where you come from this is what you're running into and it's not going to be good there's no easy solution the japanese divided their time between training and building and for nine months they put their back into this effort. And I thought it was very interesting when you read the book when he talks about the training that they were conducting simultaneous to their build. So they would build for a portion of the day and they would train. When we talk about training, we're talking about their marksmanship, uh, their ability to move under fire, how they're going to do the things they need to do in the defense and prepare themselves for that. They also did a lot of work on preparing themselves mentally for the, for the storm that was coming which is also a big component of the defense. You have to believe you can defend at that waterline or you're done. Yeah, one thing they didn't really get, go too well for him, and I don't know how much they thought about it, but uh, he pieces together communications. Once things started, communications were a big problem for the Japanese. A lot of their commu- they, their wired communications network just got chewed up and they couldn't talk to each other. He pieces that together based on the few survivors' accounts, and it hindered their ability to help each other once things got rolling. They did have to have a plan to move reinforcements around the island because I know it sounds like a lot, you know, that they, but they were limited to 4,600 based on the water supply. And we read that in the book also. It, they just didn't have... They couldn't have all the people that they wanted on that island because they just didn't have enough water. Yeah, I'm not sure they could have put too many more people on there anyways. I mean, they had it was pretty packed. Just a couple more things on the defense real quick. When you talked about the weapon systems that were on the island, Bill, they ranged from everything from 8-inch naval guns, which are very big uh, pieces that were built by the British back in the 20s and they installed them on the island. Now, those actually were pretty ineffective. You would have thought they would have done more damage to the shipping coming in, but their marksmanship was less than accurate. The things that did the most damage for the Japanese on the island were their 75-millimeter dual-purpose weapons that were designed to be both anti-aircraft guns and anti-surface shooters, and those things chewed up the LVTs, which are the Amtraks that were coming in, as well as the the Higgins boats out on the reef, as well as Marines on the beach. And then the 13 millimeter machine gun, which is their heavy machine gun, was devastating on the island. The last thing I'd point out for our listeners, if if they're interested in more about the the construction of these positions, uh, David Rogers of the University of Missouri Uh, did a really good study, and they can look that up online. The lessons that were learned at Tarawa kind of permeate uh, future amphibious assaults for not only the rest of World War II, but certainly going on for the rest of that century. But one of the, the critical overarching issues associated with amphibious operations is they're very, very difficult. And Tarawa shows this, right? When you're assaulting a position that's fortified and prepared for an assault, it's very, very difficult. So this whole concept 
of forcible entry really does highlight how technical and militarily difficult it is to overcome a defense at the waterline. So let's talk about that right now. First thing that comes to mind, to me at least, is um, everything you're doing in an amphibious operation is separated by a water obstacle, and that's coming and going. So if you need any reinforcements, any supplies, anything like that, well, you're on land, but it's going to come with a water stop in between. And also, if you need to evacuate wounded or anything like that, it's got to go back over a water obstacle. So you get this uh, this sort of extra dimension of friction thrown in to anything you're trying to do simply because it's, a, it's an amphibious operation. When they started planning this right after Guadalcanal, uh, the chief of staff, he estimated that they were going to have 30% admin casualty rate. And that admin, what that's saying is that they're going to need that many more support personnel just to get the unit supported and moved from ship to shore. So that's all those guys that get stuck on the, uh, the scullery detail, that are guides walking people through the ship. That's the, uh, just a lot of little different support functions just to get that unit moved. That brings up another point. A part of this whole moving the unit is you've only got, you have to decide what you're going to bring. And once the task force sets sail, well, you got what you got. But uh, space is limited, so you have to make trade-offs on what you're going to bring. And it's very limited because the ships are only so big. And then once you decide what you're going to bring, you got to, you basically, you got to reverse load everything. If it's in the bottom of the ship or the the last vehicle in the well deck, well, you ain't going to be able to move it forward. Uh, so yeah, you got to decide what you're going to bring with limited space, and then you got to reverse load it, and the battle hasn't even started, but uh, there you have it. You have to think of everything, and not only do you have to think of everything, but you also have to bring enough to sustain yourself on that beachhead for a period of time before the logistical pipes get built. Lift is finite. It's kind of, we've talked before about, you know, you know, oil in the Pacific was a real limiting factor. Ship space is a very limiting factor. And whatever you bring, that's what you're going to use for, well, basically as far as you can plan ahead, but that you got what you got. Those ships aren't just a limiting factor for that. They're a limiting factor for the entire war. So those ships aren't just going to stay in one place and do one assault with one fleet. They're going to move to another theater potentially and support another operation, which is bigger or more important. So you have limited time and limited space. Just to take a, a brief step back, that water isn't just an obstacle. It's also a, a planning factor on how high the tide is, because if it's super high, then the landing craft can get right up to as far as inland as possible. But if the if the tide is low, then the Marines have to wade ashore further. And it's also a factor in the defense. So where they place those obstacles and how their different how their machine guns and fire support is planned from the defense. So much more complicated than in the land battle, uh, the traditional land battle, because depending on the hour, 
the obstacle is moving and the, the terrain is changing. That's a good point. This water obstacle that you got coming or going, well, it's not static and it can change a lot. So uh, what might work in the morning isn't going to work in the afternoon necessarily. So that, that that's just getting there. The other thing that comes up in all these landings in World War II is after they've loaded up and they've decided what's going to go where, once they show up, they are all very vulnerable. Basically, you got a fleet stuck next to an island. It is vulnerable at that point. And so, again, once they show up off the shore, you're committed and you got to start doing what you're doing with your fire support plan. And uh, the longer the fleet is there, the more vulnerable it becomes. That vulnerability really drives a lot of the planning they do, especially at Tarawa. For instance, the fire support plan was abbreviated because they didn't want fleet right next to that island for a long period of time because they were worried about both air, sea, and submarine attack on the, the fleet itself. So all of those things generate planning considerations. They also generate friction between the landing force and the naval commanders because the naval commanders have a set of issues they're concerned about and the people that are going in on the assault have a separate issue. And a lot of times that generates friction between the two. And, and I don't think it, it's not as simple as, oh, well, the, you know, the Marines just need to get used to it because, you know, we brought them here and, and, and they're on the beach so we can leave. And the, or on the Marine side saying, oh, the Navy, you know, they ran away or whatever once they dropped us off. The vulnerability of the fleet is a very real concern. Even late in the war, the fleet off Okinawa was subject to an intense kamikaze campaign that was really inflicting damage on them. So if you're in the landing force, you don't want your fleet, you don't want to look off the beach and see your fleet sunk. If that happens, you're stuck. Everything you need is on those ships. If you haven't taken the island yet and you don't have a fleet backing you up, you're going to have real problems. I think it's interesting that during an amphibious operation, each stage of the operation has a formal declaration of who's in command and a transfer of that command. This is a, a crucial point in amphibious operations uh, as we go into into World War II. It's not new. I was reading uh, this weekend, and in 1844, during the Veracruz landing, they had a formal declaration of who's in charge from Commodore Connor and General Scott, the landing force commander. Connor and, and Scott were both on the same flagship, and they had a, a formal handshake. Okay, now the landing force is in command. This command relationships is, it, it's, again, it's not just something that uh, that is just there uh, because it takes up space in the doctrinal manu manual. It, it, you're going to end up with, okay, you got a land battle going on on the island, on the shore, whatever you're trying to seize, and you can have a sea battle going on at the same time, and uh, they're both connected. Who's in charge of what at what time is very important. And also, you know, if things are going to go wrong, Murphy's Law tells you that they will go wrong at the worst time, and uh, the frictional war is a very real thing. So if you're half stuck on the on the island or on the shore and uh, your fleet really does need to do something, who's got the authority to make those decisions is very important. One of the things that the book points out very well, I think, is just shipboard life is difficult for an amphibious assault force. You have to learn how to live on a ship. It's not something you can just take assault troops, 
put them on a ship, drive them to um, an objective and kick them off and have it work. You have to do a lot of rehearsals. You have to have those uh, assault troops live on those ships for a while so they even know how to get from their birthing areas to their embarkation points. And all that is a process and it's difficult to do and takes a lot of time. That's why even though they had five months to plan for Tarawa from the time they got their receipt of order to execution and they didn't have enough time, you know, they, they always felt like they could have done more rehearsals. But this brings up an interesting point. There's this whole like fantasy that the Germans could have invaded England in 1940. Fantasy. All right. They had no history of it, no practice, no assault ships, nothing. It would have been a disaster for the Germans to do it. That's why they didn't do it. Um, but there's plenty of people out there that believe if they would have just done it, you know, it would have been over the war. No, fantasy. It's funny. I did, uh, the Germans did a rehearsal landing in 1940 from, a, I forget what port it was in France, but to another beach in France as part of prepping for Operation Sea Lion. And th they basically learned that they couldn't pull it off. When they did those rehearsals, it impacted their planning for the defense because then they thought, well, the English and the Americans are going to have the same restrictions that we've just discovered. And they're going to want to go in the shortest route between across the channel. Uh, they're not going to have enough landing craft. And they're going to put the landing at a low tide versus a high tide. And so they made a couple of assumptions from their rehearsal. I thought it was funny. Their answer to the uh, logistics restrictions was that they were going to have no vehicles at all going into England, and it was all going to be by horse because they couldn't get the fuel across. I got to jump in on that point. And uh, yeah, the cross-channel jump is a big deal, but in a lot of ways, it's more of a shore-to-shore -shore operation vice a strictly amphibious one, meaning you can stage a lot of stuff on one side of the channel and then have to move it across vice, if it's strictly an amphibious show, you got to have it all at sea and you ain't bringing anything else uh, across with you. So yeah, I'm with you as hard as it was to get across the channel. Well, that's a little bit easier in that it's shore to shore which is not the case uh, in the pacific these were these were strictly amphibious shows with a sea base and also on this whole shipboard life there is no extra space anywhere no one's going to say oh we're just going to use that space because we all need to stretch out or we're just it's extra no everything is packed to the gills being able to keep track of where everything's at it's a real issue the germans they tried the uh the barges that they use on the Rhine, they thought, well, we'll just take those and use those uh, to do our logistics across the channel. And during the rehearsal, they discovered that those barges couldn't handle the weather in the channel, and uh, they lost a couple. That whole specialized equipment in terms of boats and, and vehicles for amphibious operations brings up a good point. You're not just going to go take any old ship and go take uh, any old vehicle, put the two together and, and think it's going to work because it's not. Fortunately, the U.S. during the 30s had some time to develop and test certain things. Uh, and he talks about them in the book, like uh, the LSTs, uh, the LSDs, the, uh, and the, uh, the Amtraks, the LVTs. They were all good ideas the U.S. had developed beforehand that allowed them to do these kinds of things. 
The other point I'd like to make is how do you put in control mechanisms during the assault, right? And one of them, one of the control mechanisms can be time, right? So you can either do event-driven stuff or time-driven stuff. And in many cases, they do it by time. And this is very problematic. And you see this again at Tarawa and you see it in the book. Like for instance, the fire support is based off a time thing. We're going to do this and this and this and this, but you're operating in this dynamic environment, which is the sea. And weather comes into play. And when you do things off of time in an amphibious assault, a lot of times it goes awry. And you see that at Tarawa and all of these that that use that. All right. So with the complexities of amphibious operations, all these start out with some kind of preparatory fire, some kind of fire support plan. So let's talk a little bit about that. That goes in line with the this concept of forcible entry on a fortified position. So you have to try to reduce as many of those defensive positions as you can through a fire support plan pre-landing. And what you really have is two options. The first option would be a short duration, high concentration fire support plan that's designed to overwhelm the enemy and suppress them while the assault waves are going in. Or you could have a elongated fire support plan that takes weeks, if not months at some times, to reduce those positions over time and limit the enemy's ability to build and prepare the positions prior to the assault. In this particular case, it was decided to do a short-duration, high-concentration fire support plan primarily to achieve and limit the enemy's ability to attack the fleet. Two points. Uh, one, what you described there with this, you know, uh, reliance on fire support. It almost sounds like if someone wanted to wanted to bring up the idea, hey, Marine Corps, you didn't learn anything from World War One because what you're describing sounds a lot like what they were trying to do before sending everyone over the top. But they had to do it anyway. That's the only way it's going to get done. But uh, this whole thing of which is better, the shorter, more intense, or longer, heavier tonnage of fire support applied. A couple other things come in that they talk about them in the book is the Navy was very, they went with the short option because they were worried about the Japanese surface counterattack, which is a very real concern. That was the Japanese plan. So that's one reason why they went short. And the other thing that uh, they talk about in here is because you're not going to be able to resupply the fleet with ammunition, ammunition at sea, don't you don't expend everything on the beach. You've got to have something for a fleet action. This development of the fire support plan was really one of the areas where you see the friction between the Navy and Marine Corps. The 2nd Marine Division had several things they would have liked to do differently that were all denied. For example, they would have liked to have placed uh, their artillery uh, battalions on neighboring islands so that they could fire indirectly into Badio in support of the assault waves from a safer enclave. There was a whole bunch of other ideas on what they wanted to do with close air support as well as naval gunfire. And those were all turned off by the Navy to meet that requirement you're talking about, Bill, that uh, protection of the fleet and short duration. It is understandable, though, because in the book, you see it, the subs are coming. You know, the Japanese subs are going to show up. But even though the fire support 
is not as effective as, as everyone would have wished. One of the things you don't see in the book is any Japanese fire support. And so I have to believe that the American fire support was effective in knocking out any indirect fire that they had. Now, part of that was because the Japanese, due to the terrain of Tarawa, were unable to make any indirect fire uh, support uh, emplacements that could survive a bombardment. And we don't see the Japanese utilizing cover of darkness later on to reestablish those positions. So it was effective in that sense that it did stop the Japanese from having indirect fire. The effectiveness of all these fire support plans in the Pacific comes up like uh, uh, even as late as, you know, Iwo Jima, where they were really laying it on. Well, um, there's still a very strong defense is is awaiting the landing force. But saying that it's not being effective, I think, is too simplistic because you are not just doing this with small arms. You have got to bring your fire support with you. You've got to integrate it. And that's going to be your biggest advantage going into these things. Well, that's one of the things that Taro brings to light collectively in terms of amphibious assault against a fortified position is it highlighted the things that we needed to really work on. And one of them would be close air support. We had done it going all the way back to the 20s, but it showed this need for very close coordination between the aircraft in the air and the units on the ground to hit those pinpoint targets that were critical to and limiting the advance of the assault troops. They didn't have that perfected yet at Tarawa. Tough thing with fire support is, and you see the Marines trying to mark their forward trace with flags uh, in the book, and the coordination is hard because the forward elements don't have radio, and they're sending runners back, and they're trying to coordinate these attacks by time, and it's not working well. But the close air support isn't as close as they'd like it. But then later after the battle, they discover that it is effective from the Japanese perspective. I think it gets back to your point, right? It really did limit the Japanese ability to bring in direct fires onto those beachheads. If they would have been able to set up their mortars and pound that seawall uh, day one and, and night one, it, it would have doubled the casualties, there's no doubt. You bring up a good point with the communications because, you know, anyone can just blaze away with cannons at whatever. But if you're not talking to the guy between the guy shooting it and the guy that needs it, it's it's essentially worthless. And you got to have that communications, you know, the nervous system of the whole operation. And that was a challenge for them on Tarawa. The comms did not work perfectly. And the, the communications you saw... In the book, the Japanese lost their calm due to the, the terrain. They weren't able to dig in their lines, and the bombardment severs their landlines or the uh, telephone lines, if you will, between the positions. And that really stops them from doing reinforcements and also stops some of their indirect fire. And then in the U.S., you see that the, the battleships, 
that are supposed to be doing the indirect fire support are also trying to serve as command ships. And that's one of the lessons learned, that you can't do both because the the firing of the guns inhibits the the communication. That was really telling. Yeah, the Japanese, their their wire comms got broken, so they're not talking to the guy next to them. But on the U.S., when these mighty powerful battleships launch with their broadside, their opening salvos, and they knock out their own radios, so they, they've reduced their, their utility there. And that was one of the takeaways, was, okay, our own radios are vulnerable to our, our own guns going off. This idea of radio communication, it's not that they didn't have radios, but it's important for people to understand is that the Marines that went into Tarawa had to wade through 500 or more meters of lagoon. And that lagoon was anywhere from waist deep to chest deep. And no radio is going to survive that. They didn't have the waterproofing uh, procedures in place to get those radios ashore working. Now, where they did get them ashore was on the left flank. The battalion that was on the left flank did have its radios functioning. And the destroyers that actually sailed, you know, within 700 meters of the shore, so that's like nothing, they had good comms with them and were able to direct their fires on the, the enemy positions near them, was highly effective. And what you see is that these destroyers, which can get in very, very close, you see the same thing at D-Day, by the way. Some of the most effective fire support at D-Day, they had battleships and cruisers and you know the, the rocket ships and all of it. But what was most effective at D-Day were those destroyers that uh, almost ran aground, they were so close, and could hit those targets um, on Omaha Beach. You know, you start to see these trends forming, right? Fire support, you know, big guns are impressive, but it's those five-inch guns being delivered off destroyers, which are really destroying targets. Those are super accurate. Uh, the other ones that are super accurate are when they finally get some 75-millimeter pack howitzers ashore, and now they can wheel those guns up right point-blank into the Japanese positions and, and really knock some doors down. Back to that pack howitzer. So it's, again, when you read the book, you, they talk in detail about this, but the pack howitzer you could break down into its component parts. So like the breech on the thing, I think is like 225 pounds. They manhandled that in by part through that lagoon and then set those things up. And they got to carry the shells for it. So you can imagine the effort to get those guns ashore with their ammunition so they can start hitting targets. That's some pretty manly stuff. It's also a good example of it's not as simple as to get your artillery there, that you tow it in and you just lay in the battery where and when you think. It's like, no, you got to get it to the beach. So in this case, they had guys carrying in parts of uh, pack howitzers to put them together on the beach and carry in all the ammunition. That's how they're building up fire support on the island. Tarawa also brings in this fire support dimension of using tanks to support the infantry moving forward. And they did bring some Shermans ashore and Stuarts early in the battle. What they found again is if the infantry doesn't support the tank, the Japanese would just swarm it and kill it. So you have to have this concept of the infantry and the tanks moving forward. And those tanks have to be amphibious because they got to get through that water and up on the beach. Um, that's why you see some of these things where they have a phone in the back of the tank so that the infantry can talk directly to the tank commander without having to jump up on top of that turret and get shot. 
So all of these things, these lessons are being learned in 1943. They'd kind of seen them, but until you operate and do something for real, you don't learn the lesson for real. The other thing I saw in the book that I think that's worth mentioning is that when we start talking about planning fire support, you not only have to plan for your offensive fires, but you have to plan for your defensive fires and also for your nighttime fires. Um, And then finally... I really think this is one of the first times that they use the fire support areas for ships and get some deconfliction on the gun target line with the aircraft. And so I thought those were good things that the book brought out. That's a good point. That whole concept of deconfliction, again, this is a dynamic environment, right? Because you don't want to be running aircraft into these gun target lines and have you knock your own airplanes down. So you're right. Again, the bigger these fire support plans become, the more complex they become. This is difficult PhD warfighting kind of stuff. I would say, you know, the Marines talk a lot about how the the fire support was less than optimal on Tarawa, but it did achieve one major goal. Early in the fight, it killed the Japanese commander uh, on the island as he was moving from one command position to the other to try to influence action. That was critical in the battle because... On the first night when they were, they could have counterattacked when the Marines were most vulnerable, there was no commander to lead them and direct the action. And, and it is highly likely if he would have been alive, he would have seen that. Now, again, it would have been difficult for them to coordinate that because of the, the issue you talked about, Kevin, with their communications being disrupted by the fire support. So if there's two things that the fire support at, at Tarawa did, it did one, it killed the commander right away, which like lopped off the head. And two, it disrupted their communications by knocking out their ability to talk talk between uh, units and fortified positions, which had a major impact on them. So for its drawbacks, enough weight of shell, which is really what did both of these things, uh, generated some good things. All right, let's transition to a discussion on the lessons learned from Tarawa. I found it interesting in the book, it sounds like the Marine Corps did this, well, and the Navy they did like a formal post-mortem on what happened at Tarawa and they did it real quick. It was like they treated the island like one big crime scene to go learn as much as they could because they knew that, okay, this is going to be the first of a couple of these we do. Uh, Didn't go totally right, but we need to start learning and changing now. So like they even had the guy come in and draft all the what the Japanese positions were so they could go build replicas and find out what it takes to destroy these things. This isn't what wasn't an afterthought, and they did it in real time uh, as organizational learning. Yeah, well, that's because, you know, the next invasion was already being planned and better, better to execute. So they were a fast-moving train, so you didn't have time to build a whole committee on it. One thing that they did was they had observers from other units there and we saw that in, in when Colonel Sheldon, I believe it was, uh, took over uh, when the COs were killed. But So they had already planned to get this information out afterwards. Can you imagine being a, an observer at Tarawa? It's just like the Disneyland of amphibious assault. You just get to go in and get shot at take some notes and then you got to go back and you you need to start talking to people about it people need to start learning this wasn't just a learning afterwards the situation forced these guys 
to learn and do some things beforehand, like the use of Amtrak's, they got those things specifically for logistics vehicles. They were like, okay, we can kind of save a couple. It's also a boat. We can run all our logistics in. And then before the assault, they were like, all right, it might be real useful getting across the reef if we use those things as assault vehicles. And it works. So they're like, okay, we're going to do a lot more of that in the Pacific. Uh, so they started learning beforehand, then they kept it learning afterwards, uh, and they had to do it in real time. To go along with that, you see that this was also the first assault where they used an LSD, which is a, has a well deck. So they could, they could ballast down the well deck and then have loaded um, Amtrak's come out the back, which they perfected as the war went on. And we still do that today. If you look at the vast majority of our amphibs have well decks because of that. You're not going to winch a vehicle over the side of a ship one at a time into another boat and have that work for you. So yeah, that was another good idea they had beforehand and it proved to be a good idea and we still do it today. But they also, you know, did other stuff. They knew the reef was going to be an issue beforehand. It proved to be an issue. So right after that, it was like, okay, we need something that can determine what the reef conditions are and what the obstacle conditions are and deal with it. And that's why they stood up the whole underwater demolition program, which proved to be very useful uh, during during the campaign in the Pacific. I think at Tarawa, too, it wasn't just the reef. There were some obstacles on the other side of the island that the, they ended up having vehicles, landing craft, hit mines. Um, it could have been a lot worse because the Japanese installed the mines incorrectly, according to the author. But they figured out, hey, pre-assault, as the assault waves are going in, we need to have people clearing these beaches of obstacles. That's the development of the UDTs, which then become the SEAL. So, I mean, that legacy still lives on today. By the way, real quick, we should do something on the father of the UDTs. That guy was an interesting cat, by the way. Yeah, he was. Um, he, way back in the day, the Navy didn't want him because he wore glasses. Kaufman was a he was a real thinker. He developed the program from the ground up, and it worked. Um, but it's basically combat engineering in the surf, uh, and uh, and it worked through the other campaigns. So they did that. By the way, do you know he was the superintendent of the Naval Academy? I do. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. I didn't know that. I saw his portrait when I was there. Um, I don't know, a couple months ago. I was like, holy cow, that's the guy who was the father of the UDTs. He was a legit innovator. His fingerprints are still all over the program. So that worked. The LVTs, they worked. And so they needed, they realized, hey, we got to expand that. And then they started refining a lot of the fire support and comm procedures as well. I think they, they like, you know, specialized some of the, uh, some of the battleships uh, to be specifically fire support platforms. Right. And in that command decision they said hey we need to have command ships right we can't be on battleships and try to command the the operation from there because when you fire the main battery you lose all the radios potentially because the violent the violence of that um, action um, and you gotta you gotta understand that these radios weren't part of the the architecture of the ship a lot of times you're bringing radios on and just installing them even deck mounting them uh, including their antennas so that you can talk if you're, you know, somebody who's a Marine who needs to talk to the salt force. Well, when that main battery goes off, you lose that radio permanently because, you know, it's pretty, the overpressure is pretty high when the main battery goes. So um, that's why they built command ships and they built command ships with the communications built into them so that the Marines, when they came aboard, could plug right into those circuits 
and not have to worry about it. And you see all of that today on all of our ships today, the amphibs. They have spaces for Marines. They got spaces for the Navy. They have spaces for command. And they that's all integrated into it. Yeah. It, what also struck me on all this is it's clear the, they had to figure they're having debates on what the what right looked like before doing this and then right after on okay what do we need to change and then we've had a couple other points in history where the same things happen i I just want to make a couple other things that they did i thought it was readily apparent to them that they didn't that they i don't think they really took into account was what do we do with wounded right and you see the same thing at normandy right like what do you do with wounded because as we've talked about earlier in the in the podcast, the, the casualties at Tarawa were so horrific. You know, you have hundreds, and in some cases, you know, close to a thousand casualties, and they're stuck on a little strip of beach 10 meters wide. You got to have a plan to get them off the beach as soon as possible and out to those hospital ships or ships out um, in the inv- in invading force. And that was developed there. So, you know, you see the same thing with fire support. How do you how do you have on call fire support both from surface ships and from aircraft? Again, they had to break the eggs at Tarawa to figure those things out and go. You know what? This didn't work. This did work. This is how we're going to do it in the future. And by the way, we've got another one coming in a couple of months, so we got to integrate that into what they're doing pronto. That whole wounded question is, it illustrates the point we were talking about. Um, you have to bring everything you need and everything you do is separated by a water obstacle. So basically, you're not just going to put a guy on a stretcher and carry him back to uh, an aid station. Well, you can. That can be the start of the process, but aid station's on the beach. It's still under fire. He's not going to get healthy there. You have to get him on some kind of watercraft and then you have to, and just getting him to a ship isn't, a, isn't you know, the answer uh, to answer all your problems. Uh, he ain't getting on that ship himself. You got to get him up there. Whatever medical care, you're bringing it with you. He talks about the, you know, where the wounded overwhelmed the facilities on a couple of the smaller ships. So that's why you have to have, if you're going to adequately care for people, you got to have dedicated medical ships with big capacity uh, to handle a lot of people and the ability to transport people there. And it's and every link in that chain's got to work for the whole thing to work. The default answer is, oh, you know, the landing craft that are coming in with the assault waves, you just throw those wounded on those and they go back out to sea and they take, they have another mission, right? They've got to go back out. They've got to get more troops and bring them ashore. They're on a timetable. And we talked about timing not necessarily being the best way to do things. So, for instance, at Normandy, the coxswains were under orders. At no circumstances will you wait on the beach or take wounded off the beach because your responsibility is to drop those guys off, turn your landing craft around, get back out to sea, get to another ship that you've been assigned, pick more people up, and bring them ashore. You can't do that if you're picking up a wounded guy and taking him to some ship that can treat him. This is a complex thing. This is difficult to do. That's why amphibious assaults are very, very difficult to plan and execute. And you're not just going to do these things on the fly. You cannot figure it out as you go through it. You saw in the book that it took the 2nd Marine Division a couple months to track down all their wounded because these Amtraks, or the wounded were coming back to different ships and then getting processed. And remember, 
these guys who are wounded, the Japanese are not using small arms. Everything that the Japanese is on defense, they don't have to worry about mobility. So why put in a light machine gun when you can put it in the 13 millimeter? And so all the wounds are catastrophic. Um, there, there's very little a flesh wound, if you will, from like TV. You know, we're, we're seeing a lot of amputations, a lot of burns, a lot of high explosions. And so when these guys get back to the ship, you have no idea who this guy is. And so uh, without that designated collection points or designated hospital ships, each ship is taking uh, in their sick bay. They're getting overwhelmed and they don't know who they got. So it took them months to figure it out. That's a great point. I thought the description in the book where they talk about that destroyer, I forget what ship it was, but I think it was a destroyer that was, you know, landing craft were just headed out to it because it was close and dumping off wounded. Their doctor did unbelievable work. I think he, the whole like ship just became inundated with wounded guys. And those guys, I think they operated for three days straight. It was a staggering number of people that they brought to that ship and just dumped them there because it was the closest ship. So yeah, good point, Kevin. It, they had to sort all this out too. Um, it was all pencil and paper. There was no internet. There is no database. And uh, it's basically a lot of clipboards and uh, pencils. And then uh, you got to figure out who's where and decide what you're going to do with them. Uh, again, that whole thing is not a self-solving problem, and, but you got to do it. It's important to remember that warfare in general is not static and it's evolutionary. And you kind of see since Tarawa, you can kind of see some of this evolution and you can see that maybe we're at this point of inflection right now of how do we continue to do this type of operation given the threats that exist? That has uh, been an ongoing discussion. The what the playbook that they finished World War II at was basically a huge fleet comes sitting right off the shore and uh, landing a lot of stuff and applying a lot of fire support. But you got a huge fleet sitting right off shore in the nuclear age. Mm, that might not work. Also, in the age of anti-ship cruise missiles, might not work. So, what comes to mind is like you know, in Desert Storm in 1991, the Marine Corps didn't do a landing, and a lot of people were like, well, at least internal, the Marine Corps were like, mm, that might not be a good look. And so there was a push to like, let's see if we can get an amphibious force over the horizon and spread it out. And that's why we've got things like LCACs and Ospreys and well, tried to have things like expeditionary fighting vehicles. But this debate on how to do it is still going on. Regardless of the, I guess, method of warfare that you're talking about, one of the things you see over time, a trend, if you will, is the dispersion of the force allows you to operate over greater areas and have more influence, but it also reduces your force's signature and it reduces your vulnerability to mass casualty. And that dispersion that you see, and you see it in amphibious warfare, is generated by better communications, better navigation capabilities, sensors, and assault craft allow you to spread out your force and then be able to concentrate it at some specific point that you want from all different directions. Um, and that's kind of one of those big trends you're seeing today. Part of this, it, it strikes me, is, you know, it's almost 100 years ago, our, our man Ellis was down 
trying to figure out amphibious operations in the Pacific. A hundred years later, the Marine Corps is struggling with the exact same question of how to do this. And, uh, you know, the food fight's gone public. Uh, We've traded emails on, you know, the various uh, retirees and active duty guys that have been going on with force redesign. Um, But this it's struggling with the exact same question. How are we going to do this in the exact same places? But you got to have the discussion because you're also going in cold. And probably at the start of the discussion is the understanding the requirement for logistical airstrips or ports is wildly different nowadays than it was back in World War II because we have nuclear-powered uh, ships and submarines and autonomous drones and weapon systems. So we had the island-hopping campaign in part so that we could have that logistical Uh, support as we approach Japan, we don't need as many tankers and we don't need as many airstrips. So it's going to be very interesting. Or a counterpoint to that is maybe we need more airstrips or more ports, because if you disperse your force and it becomes a shell game where you're moving them around, they can't be shooting stuff at you. They've got to find you and then fix you and then hit you. So it, it, that's, that's the heart of the argument, right, Kevin? It's do you disperse your force over the Pacific in small units and make it difficult for potential adversaries to target you? Or do you concentrate mass and be able to accomplish something else? So that's what they're trying to figure out for the future. And quite frankly, it's challenging. You know, it'll be interesting to see how they try and figure all this out. So, well, tell you what, pretty good discussion. What do you say we wrap it up? Sounds good to me. Uh, Tony, you got a shout out? This month, I'd like to recognize an organization known as History Flight, which is a privately operated 501c3 nonprofit, which is dedicated to researching, recovering, and repatriating missing American servicemen who have died overseas and been lost. So since 2003, History Flight has recovered the remains of 130 servicemen that have been identified and brought back to the States. That was both in Europe and the Pacific. Basically, these these guys are uh, archaeologists and historians who find these sites through their own study, and then they go in there and find the bodies. In addition to that, they've also recovered 250 other sets of remains, which they've turned over to the defense POW accounting agency, which is has the responsibility for identifying those folks and then notifying the families that uh, if they're still alive in, in the U.S. Um, the reason I, I found these guys was I was looking at the what we were talking about tonight on Tarawa, and there were over 200 American servicemen who were lost um, and had been lost since the war at Tarawa. They just couldn't account for the bodies. History flight in 2019, I think, went in and found 20 of those Marines on Tarawa and then brought the their bodies back to the U.S. for burial. What's crazy is that more than 50%, so ten, like 11 or I think it was like 11 or 12, of the Marines or sailors they found on Tarawa still had uh, brothers or sisters that were alive. And so that's almost statistically you know, anomaly. It's crazy that there's that many people that had brothers or sisters that were missing. So anyways, I thought that was interesting. And I would just like to thank the History Flight guys for the work they're doing. 
and how they're helping the defense POW accounting agency account for these missing brothers in arms. That's my shout out this, this month. Kevin, how about you? What do you got going on? You know, that is, that is a, a great shout out. Um, those guys helping give peace to those families, uh, definitely a worthy cause. And uh, thank you to them. Uh, my shout out goes to uh, Jeff Jones, who is the CEO of Solution Tree Publishing. Uh, Solution Tree, it's located in Bloomington, Indiana, a publishing company that specializes in school books. And as their website uh, states, they publish books for administrators and educators, which are focused, pragmatic, and build solutions. My shout out is for Mr. Jones, as the CEO, who made the national news. Two employees of Solution Tree went to the press announcing their resignations and stating the reason was a hostile workplace because they were used to using the pronoun that they wished to identify with and they could not on official company correspondence to clients. Uh, Mr. Jones basically made this statement to the employees of Solution uh, Solution Tree and the press, and this is what he stated. How someone wants to be identified has nothing to do with advancing the work of the authors. It has to do with the individual, just like race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or causes, movements, or societal changes they are interested in. It has nothing to do with our business, and these resignations are accepted, and our policy stands. So I just wanted to give him a shout out for, hey, he has a policy in his company, and he stood by it, and I think right now in our society, we need people who are willing to hold the standards. So, Yeah, I'll have to look that up. And Bill, how about you? What do you got for a shout-out? I do have one. I'd just like to shout-out to the Lamb Center. The Lamb Center is uh, right here in Northern Virginia area. They are providing shelter and other services to the homeless. Uh, it is, like a lot of other things, largely volunteer-powered. If you want to find out more, Google thelambcenter.org. And th- the whole reason I'm uh, this is my shout-out for this month is because someone recommended it to me and asked me to do it. So I'm uh, glad to pass it on to everyone. Where is that in Alexandria, Arlington? I think it's a little bit more, it, it, it more towards Fairfax. Oh, okay. Okay. So next month, we are going to review Charles McDonald's book, Company Commander. This really is a classic account of infantry combat in World War II. McDonald was a 21-year-old captain with no combat experience who had to take command of a company of veteran infantrymen in October of 1944. So those, his company had already done a considerable amount of fighting, and he has to assume command after their company commander gets wounded and he goes in. So it really follows his journey as he learns how to be a company commander in very, very trying situations. The book was written in 1947 and is as meaningful today as it was 70 years ago when it was written. So please join us in August as we review and discuss company commander. And as always, Kevin, save yourself some money. Um, I know your trip out to Seattle probably didn't save you any money in this regard. Support your local libraries by checking out all manner of books. So, Kevin, any closing thoughts for tonight? You know, when we read books like this, you know, parachute drops, amphibious operations generally result either in an extreme gain, 
tactically, strategically, or an extreme loss. And during the war and after, Tarawa has remained controversial due to the horror of the numbers, and it was magnified uh, at that time by some of the first film and pictures of the war. Tarawa, just the name, resounds within the Marine Corps along with the halls of Montezuma, uh, Bellawood, and, and Way City. Uh, leaders at that time, you know, they defended that cost as necessary, that if it wasn't going to be Tarawa, then that cost would be paid later in the campaign and perhaps with even a greater loss. I, I'd recommend this book. It's, it's well worth the time to read, and as it explains that cost that was paid, and to some extent, what, that, what those lives purchased was a revelation of the enemy and the equipment and an education in modern amphibious ops. Yeah, here, here. I couldn't agree with that whole thought any more than that. I think it's, um, it's, it's 100% on. So, yep, I agree. Bill, closing thoughts? Yes, I'm with you. I, I do have one other thing, and I know we're going to put this in um, probably on the website. But there, the interesting thing about Tara, which which gets to your point, Kevin, is there are there's some footage taken while they were in the assault at Tarawa, which is just astounding. It's color, it's, and I, I can't even imagine being a combat correspondent or a press guy going into that beach. But there were, and they did a lot of filming, um, and there's there's actual films that were made from that footage that are documentary type stuff that was made during the war that they showed as news news reels. Um, and we will put links to that on the website. Be on the blog. Yep. And it, it is really amazing to see the pictures that they're taking in the environment they're in is astounding. So yeah, I agree, Kevin. I think it'll give the listeners even more kind of insight into what we're talking about if you just watch that as well. So, hey, uh, Bill, why don't you take us out of here? Uh, well, again, thanks uh, for tuning in and uh, listening. If you want to learn more about this episode or the show in general, uh, please check out our website at odinasop.com, uh, all one word. We've also got uh, the blog, links to the blog on there, where we've got uh, additional resources for each episode. We've got contact information. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, and if you care to make a donation, uh, we've also got a PayPal link there. Uh, but again, thanks for tuning in, and uh, please stay on the net. Out here. Right. Out here.